following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Looking forward to uh, finishing up Matthew 5 today. So we're, uh, I think this is the 12th sermon in one chapter. That's a lot of sermons. That's a long chapter. So, um, uh, but uh, it's been a, 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 rich, a rich journey and, and excited to get into chapter 6 uh, next week and continue on. So, so Matthew chapter 5 will be in verses 43 through 48 this morning. But uh, before we get to the text, uh, last weekend was, was a rather hectic weekend for me. I had a lot going on um, the whole weekend. And uh, as a result, uh, I knew uh, that there were bad things happening over in Afghanistan, but I didn't really have any time uh, Saturday, or, Saturday or Sunday to, to catch up on the news. So, so Monday morning, I, I happened to wake up pretty early, and so I took some time to uh, read over uh, some different news articles and so forth and just to catch up on it all. And, and it was a horrible situation last weekend, wasn't it? And it continues to be... And, and so it was uh, difficult to, to read about all the violence that was going on over there. Criminals who have been captured, being released from prison. And, um, and most grievous, of course, is just reading about the brutality ahead for, for Christians and, and for those that, uh, that resisted the Taliban uh, over the years. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that many of you, most of you probably, have kept up on it to some extent. Maybe you saw that video that was going around last Monday with the, the Air Force plane, you know, all sealed up and ready for takeoff, and, and all these people are desperately trying to get on this plane uh, to flee uh, from the violence that was there. And, and all of it was, was heartbreaking. And, um, and it should inspire in us a righteous indignation, an anger over uh, the evil that is taking place. And so I read about all that, and, and I read a little bit more when I got uh, to the church uh, later on in the morning, and then, interestingly, I finished doing reading, and then I immediately jumped into this text uh, that we are going to be in today, and it really hit me hard. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Verse 45 is the one that really stood out to me on Monday morning. You know, and it's, it's just fascinating to think that there are billions of people all over this world who are living in rebellion against God. They shake their fists. They blaspheme the name of God every day. And yet Jesus says that God is abundantly generous and merciful 
to all of them. And our God is love. And in this passage, Jesus calls us to reflect the love of our Heavenly Father even to enemies who do horrible things against us. And so, as such, just as Jesus has done in the last five paragraphs, he sets a high standard in this passage, a hard standard. Yeah, in fact, you might even look at verses 43 through 48, you might be already thinking about someone in your life, and you're sitting there thinking, no way. Love my enemy the way Jesus does? That's not possible. That is not reasonable for God to ask. And yet, Jesus means what he says. And he also never asks more of us than we can accomplish in the strength of his grace. So we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying in this passage, and we need to commit to living it. So so as Jesus has done in the last five paragraphs, beginning in verse 21, he, he begins by citing a command from the Old Testament. But this time, he does something a little different, and that is, that he also adds a false application uh, that the Jews had made of that command, which he's then going to turn around and destroy. And so, notice in verse 43 uh, that Jesus begins by noting that the Jews had the right truth, but the wrong application. So so the right truth that the Jews had, uh, he cites there the command to love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor. Now, Now, that command is rooted ultimately... Uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, now notice there that that verse actually connects our text from last week uh, with this text. So, So, you are not to take vengeance, which was, of course, the subject of verses 38 through 42, but instead... You are to genuinely love everyone, which is the subject of verses 43 through 48. And and of course, love is not just the answer to a sin like vengeance and wrath, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that the entire law hangs on rightly loving God and loving my neighbor. So, So this command to love your neighbor is foundational to the entire biblical ethic. So as we've said often, every command in Scripture, you could could really boil down to being an expression of how I rightly love God, rightly love my neighbor, or in most instances, some combination of both. The law hangs on these two demands. And in fact, that was so clear that even Jesus, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees agreed on it. Like, Like, how often did that happen? But they actually agreed on that point. However, as sinners so oftentimes do, sinners had found ways to mess up this command to love your neighbor. And and the Jews had done that. They had messed up this command by debating the meaning of the word neighbor. So specifically, in Jesus' day, a lot of Jews believed that, that neighbor didn't mean everyone. It only meant other godly Jews. And you see this, for example, in a pharisaical saying from the time. Uh, They would say that if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. But this man is not 
thy neighbor. So they believed, you see a Gentile drowning, let him drown, because he is not your neighbor. And we actually see an example of this debate uh, uh, later in the Gospels in Luke chapter 10. So Jesus is interacting with a lawyer uh, in the story there, and and Jesus cites the command that, that God says, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 29 says, but he, speaking of this lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So what's he saying? He, he, he is doubting uh, the idea that, that, that everyone is my neighbor. And of course, Jesus answers him with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what is he teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan? That, that, that anyone who is in need is your neighbor. And that we are to love and support and care for anyone where God opens the door. But unfortunately, most were Jews rejected God's heart as expressed in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and they only chose to express love towards those who were convenient to love, people who were just like them. And that misinterpretation opened the door to a wrong application, which is, as Jesus cites in verse 43, that you are to hate your enemy. Now, now that is never said in the Bible. Right? That, that, that is not a quotation of the Scripture. That was a, a common Jewish assumption of the day. Now, now, it is also true, though, that at times the Old Testament has some really strong words about evil people, doesn't it? You know, and so Israel, uh, there are some strong words about Israel's enemies and, and about all types of wicked people. In particular, there are a number of psalms uh, that we know as imprecatory psalms, where, where, where the psalm is actually praying destruction on, on evil people. So, 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 so we might read some of those things and think that the Bible teaches that it is appropriate to hate your enemies. But we need to understand, and what the Jews failed to understand, is that the common denominator in, in all those pronouncements of judgment uh, is that Israel's enemies were not just resisting Israel. Right? They were resisting God, and God's glory was at stake in those conflicts. So, so, so God never commanded Israel to hate their enemies. There was a, a different purpose involved when, when God said those strong things and at times acted strongly against Israel's enemies. No, no instead, while the Old Testament never specifically said, uh, and instead actually you see very often uh, that, that the Bible taught that you should love your enemy. Now, now, I never said that expressly. I never said love your enemy, but it comes awfully close. In fact, look at this case law in Exodus chapter 23. It says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You know, so, so maybe the, you know, the modern, you know, com- or, you know uh, similar situation, you know, you, you're some guy down the street, he really irritates you, and you see his dog running down the road, and you're like, yes, his dog's running away. You know, but you ought to instead think, you know, I, I don't like this guy, and frankly, I don't like his dog, but, but I'm going to let him know, you know, or if I can, I'm going to help him out. And so even for your enemy, God said you should be willing to help. Uh, Similarly, Proverbs 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, 
give him water to drink. And as well, uh, that love for other people extends even to the Gentile nations. So uh, Exodus 25, verse or 22, excuse me, verse 21 says, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So a stranger there would be uh, basically another word for a foreigner, and, and God says don't mistreat foreigners, because you are a foreigner. And so Israel was to extend kindness and justice to everyone, including the Gentiles around them. But sadly... Uh, The Jews of Jesus' day had allowed bitterness and self-righteousness and pride to to twist these these other aspects of God's law, God's judgment on the nations, into justifying hatred. And it's a good reminder to us that we need to carefully weigh all of Scripture as we build our theology and as we build our ethic. Because otherwise... You know, we're really good at latching on to a part of the Bible that is, we really like and is really convenient for our sinful purposes and just kind of pretending like this stuff over here doesn't exist. That's what had happened to the Jews, and that's what so often happens to us. And we especially need to be cautious as we think about balancing biblical priorities like grace and justice or hatred of evil. And love. Now that's complicated, isn't it? Maybe you've got a family member who is living in sin. And so you have that conflict of how do I love this person while not in any way seeming to condone the sin in which they're living? That's challenging. But we have to find a way to strike that balance that honors the Lord and reflects His character. So, So the Israelites, though, were were failing to do that, and as a result, they twisted an important biblical truth into this wrong application at the end of verse 43. So in verse 44, Jesus answers with a stunning demand, especially in his context. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, I'm thankful today that, that really I've only had a handful of people in my life that could even be remotely considered an enemy. You know, so, so sometimes uh, I read through David's Psalms, and sometimes he talks, he complains to the Lord about his enemies who, who want him dead or, or who want serious pain to come on David. And I just sit there and say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have any of those people in my life that, that want me dead like David did. But, but we've all had someone, or many people maybe, who, who lie to us. They're disloyal. Maybe you know of someone who has slandered you towards others. Or they do some other type of intentional damage, and it hurts, right? And thinking more broadly, even if you don't have an, an enemy like that, we all you know, can look out on the news or, or look at world events, national events, and And we are surrounded by by enemies, by evil people. So so we should get fired up by by what the Taliban is doing to to Christians and other peace-loving people. We should get angry about what what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to the Uyghurs and and to others of their own citizens. Those things are evil and and sinful. But, But incredibly, Jesus says... 
Love your enemies. Now, now, now it needs to be said here that, that Jesus does not mean that you feel warm fuzzies towards them. You know, like you're watching the news and you're watching you know, the Taliban doing, you know, committing violent deeds and you're like, oh, look at those sweet people. I love them so much. I mean, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. No, no biblical love, uh, contrary to how we think in our day, is not primarily a feeling. No, it's a, it's a response. It is acts of kindness and generosity. So we read earlier, Proverbs 25.21 says that you love your enemy by the fact that if your enemy is hungry, you give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So, so you love your enemy through acts of kindness. It's not so much that you feel all warm inside towards them. And then Jesus follows with three expressions of, of how it is that we love our enemy. And, uh, and I should mention, just that there is a textual variant here. So if you're reading out of, uh, of a different translation, you, you probably have a shorter verse 44 than there is in the New King James. And, uh, and so a lot of translations admit blessing um, and, and doing good to those who hate you. So, so for the sake of time, uh, we're just going to lock in on that second or that last one to pray for those who persecute you. Now, again, I am very thankful today that I have not had to endure any sort of serious persecution in my lifetime. But, but my heart really grieved this week as I thought about these pastors over in Afghanistan, you know, huddled up in their house with their families or in some cellar somewhere, afraid that if they're discovered, they're going to be dragged off and killed. And I'm thankful that I've never had to endure that. But, but to a lesser extent... It hurts for all of us. If you are excluded from family or friends or, or you miss out on promotions at work or, or people slander you and do damage to your name simply because you are faithful to Scripture or, or because you do not participate with them in sin. And all of that is, is a form of persecution. And, and your natural response when people do those sorts of things is not to want to give them a hug, right? Right? I mean, you want to land a right hook. But, but Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, now, in this case, prayer is both a symptom of a godly heart and, and also a cure for a sick one. So on the one hand, there are few greater expressions of, of love and, and more loving gifts than you can give someone than to bring them to the throne of grace and to pray for their well-being. I mean, there really is nothing better, more loving you can do for someone than to pray for God's grace and kindness on them. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was actually executed by Hitler for conspiring against him, uh, was commenting on uh, verse 44 of our text once, and he said, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. So praying for persecutors is a way that we stand beside them, we plead for grace, and it is a powerful testimony of a godly heart. And I'd also mention that, that prayer is an important cure for a sick heart. Because if you're struggling with bitterness towards someone, you are, you are just angry with them, you're having a hard time loving them, then prayer is a way to forcefully turn your heart towards love. To, to bring them before the throne of grace. And I, I'd say as well, 
You know, there's no room for pride at the throne of grace, is there? You're sitting there, you're looking down your nose at someone else, and you stand before Jesus through the blood of Jesus, and all of a sudden you're like, you know, I'm not that great myself. And so prayer is also a wonderful cure for our own pride and hatred. And of course, Jesus obeyed his own command when he hung on the cross for our sins. Now think about Jesus that day. That Jesus had done nothing wrong. He had spent years ministering to people, preaching to them, healing their diseases, telling them the good news of the gospel. But there he is hanging on the cross because of of evil people who demanded his death. He's already been battered and torn and all these people are standing around him there, mocking him, glorying in the fact that he is about to die. And what does Jesus pray? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then he bore the judgment for the very ones who were demanding his death, mocking him and killing him. It's incredible, isn't it? And it might be that you have endured some terrible pain at the hands of an enemy. And you're sitting there today, you're, you're thinking about this passage, and you are thinking about how someone has hurt you, how they have sinned against you. And, and, and there is bitterness in your heart. Now, now, you might not say it's bitterness, but you can't talk about them without getting angry. That's bitterness. And, and, and your heart round, you know, wells up with, with emotion, pain, and hurt. And it's difficult. But, but Jesus is not asking more of you than he already endured himself. And if you are feeling too proud or or too resistant to to lower yourself to loving and praying for an enemy, then then just remember today that Jesus loved you when you were an enemy. And he gave his life on your behalf. And considering the grace that, that, that I have received and that you have received, then how can I not love my enemy? How can I not seek his or her best interest and pray that God would forgive them, save them, and do marvelous things on their behalf? So Jesus demands that we love our enemies, that we pray for our persecutors. And then he follows with two reasons why we must love this way. The first reason we must love this way is because loving our enemies reflects our heavenly Father. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 45. He says, he he commands them to love their enemies, and he says, do that so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, now this verse uh, really is an incredible verse. And uh, and I found it fascinating that, um, that, that, that Jesus here makes loving our enemies a defining issue of, of godliness. And he says that, that when you do this, it, it is a reflection. It doesn't make you a son of God, but it, it, is, it, is a, it is a primary way that I express the fact that I am a son of my heavenly Father. And, and the significance of that is, is that when you love your enemy, Jesus is saying that it is a unique reflection of your Father. 
And I found it interesting too this week when I uh, realized that there are only two times in in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus says you can be known as a son of of the Father. Here and in verse 9. And verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So, So Jesus is clear that there are few times that you better reflect our Father's heart than when you manifest His love in the midst of abuse and conflict. God hates bitterness. God loves generosity and grace in the midst of pain and sorrow. And then Jesus follows with a beautiful illustration of His Father's generosity and love. He says, do this that you may, or He says that, For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So so I found, isn't it just fascinating that that Jesus calls the sun the Father's son? Like this big ball of fire in the sky, it belongs to God. It is his son. And Jesus says that God gives sunshine and rain to all people. Now that's significant because sunshine and rain are our foundational blessings to all of life and to all human flourishing. You get rid of sun and rain, and, and everything's dead pretty quickly. So, so, so you know, sunshine and rain are necessary specifically to cause the plants on which all life depends to grow and to flourish. So sunshine and rain are symbols of God's grace, His blessing, His generosity. And Jesus notes that God extends these blessings to all people. To the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. And theologians oftentimes refer to this as what we call common grace. So it's common in the sense that it is given to all people. God blesses everyone, not just His children with these things, and it's grace because no one deserves sunshine and rain. Now, now we don't typically think of it that way, right? I think it's fascinating that, that Jesus here mentions the weather as one of God's common graces, and what do we complain about just about as much as anything? The weather. You know, we think that we deserve it to be, you know, this temperature today because I'm swimming, and this temperature tomorrow because I'm working, and, and we want it to rain when we want it to rain, and be dry when we want it to be dry, and And we gripe about the weather all the time because we think we deserve it to be perfect. But Jesus says that every ray of sunshine and every drop of rain is more than I deserve. It is all grace. And what is remarkable is that God gives this grace even to his enemies. And that's incredible because our world is filled with evil men and women who blaspheme God's name, and they commit horrible crimes. And our nature, our impulse, is to hate them and to wish destruction and death on them. And yet every day, they wake up to the common grace of God. God gives sunshine and plentiful food to all people because our Father is good and kind. It is all an expression of His love, His kindness, and His generosity. And don't forget that God's common grace does not just apply to evil people. You don't deserve sunshine, rain, or any other blessing. 
because you are a sinner who was born an enemy of God in rebellion against his will. So God's grace abounds to all of us. And every gift that I enjoy at the Father's hand should be a reminder to us that God has called us to be generous and gracious ourselves. You know, when your head is steaming with anger towards that guy down the street, look up at the sun. I don't stare at the sun, you know, but, but look up at the sun and think about God's grace and kindness to you. You know, and it's hard. It's hard to love enemies. But when you begin to look down your nose at others, remember God's kindness and commit to being a son of your heavenly Father by treating people in a way that reflects His grace and His kindness. So so when we love our enemies, we reflect our Father. And then the second reason Jesus gives is that loving enemies sets us apart as Christ's disciples. So verses 46 and 47 say, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Now, in these verses, I mean, Jesus just blasts our self-righteousness because we get proud of some pretty ridiculous things. So, you know, for example, have you ever watched a movie or read a book and there's this evil villain, you know, who's about to go out and, and fight against the good guys, but before he goes out to battle, he stops and he kisses his wife and he hugs his kids and, and they kind of paint him as a sympathetic figure, like he's really not that bad because he loves his wife and he loves his kids. And, and we're like, oh, you know, he's really not that bad. See, he, he loves his wife. He loves his family. You know, as if that's something extraordinary and unusual. You know, we also love to pat ourselves on our back for, for loving people who are lovable. You know, like, I mean, you might walk out of church and think, wow, I'm a loving guy. Because I just shook hands with all these people who are Christians and love Jesus and they're smiling back at me. Look at how loving I am. But Jesus says, whoop-de-doo. And he especially hits a nerve with his Jewish audience because he says, even the tax collectors do the same. Now, the Jews hated the tax collectors, right? I mean, they had betrayed them to Rome. They had sold their souls for a penny in the minds of the Jews. And Jesus says, you know, when you love your wife and kids... You know, when, when, when you are nice to people who are like you, that's not anything special. Even the worst of society does that. No, if I'm going to truly reflect the love of my Heavenly Father, then I must go further than loving the lovable. No, through the power of the Gospel, I need to pursue an unnatural, selfless love, even for an enemy. And folks, that is vital to my faith as a Christian. I mean, you might be sitting there today thinking, I think I'll just kind of put that one to the side. Because I don't like that one, and it's really hard. But we need to see, folks, what Jesus here is calling for is, is essential to our faith. And there's a reason why he says it is a unique relationship to our Father, because loving our enemies is at the heart of the Gospel, right? I mean, Romans chapter 5 Verses 6 through 8 and verse 10 say, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now now notice the condition in which God found you. Without Christ, this passage describes you as without strength, ungodly, a sinner, and an enemy of God. And the clear implication is, is there was nothing attractive about you. If God were like us, He would have kicked us to the curb. He would have hated His enemies. But God demonstrated His unique love by having Christ die for enemies so so that we could be reconciled to God and enjoy eternal life. So so folks, loving your enemies is is at the heart of our faith because that's what God did for us. So so maybe you've sat there the whole time this morning and you are just flabbergasted by what Jesus is saying. They love my enemies? That's nonsense. No way, it's absurd. And, And it might be that if that's your reaction, it's because you have never come to grips with how broken and sinful you are. You don't see yourself as an enemy of God. You don't see yourself as a sinner. You see yourself as a good guy that God really should love because I'm so special. And it might be that what you need to do today is for the very first time come to grips with how you have sinned against God. That you were born an enemy of God. And you might need to repent of your sin today before Christ for the very first time. Acknowledge that you have sinned against His will and put your faith wholly in what Jesus did for your salvation. Because there is nothing lovable in you. But God loved you while you were His enemy. And if you come to Him today, you can be saved. And so if you have never done that, I would urge you to do so today. And if you are saved, I want you to think about that person who is the hardest person in your life for you to love. Maybe someone who has inflicted the deepest hurt. The person that you can't talk about without getting angry. Or or maybe think about that politician or that uh, world or national figure that, that you just can't stomach without gritting your teeth. Think about that person and then remember how Christ loved you when you were shaking your fist in his face and you wanted nothing to do with him. It was not that you loved God. He loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation for your sins. And then I would urge you to repent of your self-righteousness, your bitterness, and commit to obey Christ in the power of his grace. And folks, this is, I mean, this might seem like, like really simple elementary stuff. But, you know, there are few things that will destroy your heart, destroy your relationship with God more than bitterness. I mean, it is absolutely destructive. And you need to repent of it and change. 
Because again, verses 46 and 47 say there's no glory in loving the lovable. Now, I'm not saying don't love your wife and kids. Love them. But, but don't think that makes you something special. No, when, when, when you love an enemy, you reflect your heavenly Father and the beauty of the gospel in a glorious, unusual way. That is a reflection of grace. So, so love your enemy in a way that sets you apart as a disciple of Jesus. And then finally, Jesus wraps up this paragraph, and, and really the entire section, extending back to verse 21, with a stunning conclusion. He says in verse 48, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, now, now that is a great conclusion, because, because verses 21 through 47 have been hard verses, right? And, and you might read them and think, Ah, God can't really mean that. Like, like, maybe he's just kind of, you know, stretching the truth, you know, and he doesn't really mean that I need to do all those things, or yeah, 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 I'm going to kind of forget that. But if we think that God is joking, this conclusion should destroy all doubt. Jesus says that your target in the Christian life is perfection or holiness. Now, now I mentioned the word holiness because, uh, because this verse is really uh, just a, a twist on a familiar Old Testament statement So Leviticus 11, verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. So hopefully you can see uh, the parallel language and structure between uh, Leviticus 11, 44 and and Jesus' statement here. So, So the point of both passages is to say that God demands the best from His people. He expects us to pursue holiness and perfection. Now, now, frankly, a lot of churches want to pretend like that's not in the Bible, right? Like, like God, God doesn't really want me to be that serious about obeying as well. Let's just have a good time and love Jesus in the process. But, but that's not what God says, does he? And God says that, that our target is the perfection of God. That I am to strive to be holy as God is holy. So, so yes, God knows that you're going to fall short of that, right? You, you are not going to hit that target today or any day of your life. Not until you reach glory. But you will when you reach glory, which is key. But, but we can't stop trying, even when it comes to doing hard things, like we've seen in verses 21 through 48, like, like eradicating anger from your life, eliminating lust, being faithful in your marriage, Honoring your word and loving your enemies, your target must remain the perfection of God. And and, and notice as well in verse 48 that our motivation and power are in the Father. Now now considering verse 45, uh, where he talks about being sons of your Father in heaven, uh, I think it is significant that that, that Jesus here in, in verse 48 says, your Father... Uh, in, in contrast to Leviticus 11.44, which says, Be holy as God is holy. So he wants to turn our attention specifically to, to the fatherhood of God as we pursue these things. And he's emphasizing here you know, that, that with all of this and with every other command in Scripture, God is not merely calling you to chase a standard. Like, like God has, has written a law in the sky, so chase that law. No, He has called you to pursue a person. Your goal is to become like your heavenly Father. 
So, so therefore, loving our enemies, as well as being honest, faithful, pure, and a peacemaker, these are primary ways that you become like your heavenly Father. And by the way, this is all coming from the person who knows the heavenly Father better than anyone else. Jesus Christ. But, but beyond that, these are also qualities that we can expect our Heavenly Father to produce in us. Now sometimes we might look at a verse like 48, like, ver- like verse 48, and just respond with despair, right? Like, perfection? Is that really what God wants out of me? But, but if, and of course, again, you're not going to get there this side of glory. But if God is your Father, and you are His Son, then you should expect that His character will progressively take root in you and that you will become like Him. And you should believe that that whatever shortcomings you have identified in yourself in verses 21-48, through that you can progressively overcome in the strength of the Spirit. And Jesus said in verse 20 that, that He wants in His people a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So, so He gives strength to us to do what He has called us to do. So, so therefore, if you are in Christ, you can love your enemy. You can forgive that person who committed a horrible sin against you. That doesn't mean that you approve of their sin or that you encourage their sin but you can manifest the same love and grace of the Father that He showed to you when you were His enemy. So this week, let's go out and let's reflect the love of our Heavenly Father. Yes, love the people who are lovable, but be someone who loves the unlovable and shows the grace and the generosity of the Father, the grace and the generosity that you received in the Gospel to everyone around you. Lord, thank You for Christ. And thank You that when we were Your enemies, that He laid down His life for us. That He even said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And Lord, I pray that there's any here today that do not know the forgiveness that Jesus offers in the Gospel. That today, They would repent of their own sin and believe on Christ. And for those of us that know you as Savior, I pray that you would fill us with the love, the grace, generosity of our Heavenly Father. Help us to live the Gospel every day uh, through this grace and kindness. In Jesus' name.